Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. Hey, before we jump into the Word, I want to take just a minute and talk about coronavirus, which is on everyone's mind. You probably read over the weekend that the first cases were uh, detected in Colorado. It's, of course, quite serious. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world, chiefly in underdeveloped or highly densely populated uh, regions, uh, have been affected and, uh, and a number have died. And so this is serious. And insofar as we are a vast, diverse family that gathers for public meetings on the weekends, um, it pertains to us in that way. So I wanted to let you know that, like you, we are aware and, um, and taking appropriate precautions. We're monitoring the recommendations and guidance of the National Institute for Health and the Centers for Disease Control as pertain to public gatherings. Uh, like most others, we're going to continue meeting. We're not going to give way to fear, but we are going to be wise and, uh, and vigilant. And so part of the way that, that that happens, I wanted to just let you know that this isn't something that started because of the outbreak of this uh, pathogen, that uh, our facility is cleaned twice a week professionally. Uh, we take that seriously, the kids' toys, all that stuff. And uh, in addition to soap and water in the bathroom, and I'm going to refrain from instructing you on how to wash your hands, you know, scrubbing vigorously with warm water and soap like Noodles and Company does for their employees on the, on the mirror. I won't tell you to do that. Um, but we will also have abundant uh, hand sanitizer all over the auditorium. So sanitize away. You know, um, as Mari and I joke after church going out to lunch, we, uh, we need to go wash off the fellowship. So um, the <laughs> let the hand sanitizer do its job. Uh, it, it seems that um, the germ of hopes will inherit the earth. Um, so <laughs> good for us. And, um, and then maybe, you know, we extend, instead of like the right hand of fellowship, maybe we extend like the fist bump of fellowship or something like that for a little while. Common sense precautions. If you're feeling sick, flu-like symptoms or whatever, and you're a tough Coloradan who isn't daunted by snow, uh, maybe just stay home and, and worship from your living room that week. Um, it's probably nothing, but, you know, those kinds of good sense precautions um, are aware of everybody. And then uh, the great thing about church, of course, is that uh, we do it every week, so there's never really any pressure. Um, but let's not let fear rule. Uh, let's model for our community um, faith and, and, and vigilance and wisdom. Um, so, you know, sneeze into your elbow, um, keep your distance uh, if you're sick, and, and then let's trust Jesus. And be uh, more than anything the... the examples of steadiness that uh, Jesus' people are in a community. Because here's what I know. Worry and anxiety, those responses make sense in the face of crisis, but uh, those don't come from God, right? Worry and anxiety are rooted in fear, and fear comes from the evil one, and he would like nothing more than to quench the work of the Spirit or hinder uh, the growth of God's kingdom and the gathering of his family out of fear. And Jesus uh, made clear that none of us, by worry, can add a single hour to his life. So if we can't accomplish this very little thing, he said, why worry about the rest? Be conscious, be wise, um, but let's live in faith. And uh, I just wanted to read this over us. Psalm 91 says, you need not fear. 
the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Why need we not fear? Is it because as Christians we're supernaturally immune? No, it's because one, we trust in God. Two, there's nothing that we can do beyond the sensible precautions or beyond giving way to fear and hiding out in a, in a bomb shelter and you know lining our basement with canned vegetables and, and waiting for doomsday. Um, but we, in the face of trying times, are the church of Jesus, and we shine hope into uh, our city and into our generation. And so we also know that at the end of the day, this earth is not our home. Uh, God is restoring it where there will be no sickness, and these bodies are not our final state. And so um, at the end of the day, we want to be wise, and yet disease can't kill us because we uh, belong to Jesus. So... Um, can we take a minute and just pray over that? Pray for the people around the world who are struggling, and then we'll jump into the Word. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, um, we recognize and stand in solidarity with uh, people in developing countries and impoverished regions, in densely populated areas, and uh, all around the world where, where people are, are racked with fear or are um, debilitated with, with worry and anxiety and where people are grieving for the loss of loved ones or um, fearing how this is sickness is going to play out. Father, we pray that you would bring hope, that you would bring peace uh, to those who are hopeless, to those who are restless. Father, we pray that in every region uh, of this world, the church of Jesus would shine with hope and would point people to you. And Father, we pray that you would bless the work of the scientists and physicians and researchers who are working tirelessly in our country and around the world uh, to solve this problem. And we pray that you would break through, that you would end this disease, uh, and that your peace would prevail. We trust you for this. Let your love shine out of the darkness and cause the light of God to rule and reign as it always has. And as we turn our attention to your word, we pray you'd cause it to come alive in our hearts and transform us. We give it our focused attention, Lord. This is our worship this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I started my professional career, I served for four years in the United States Army. I was an Army ROC Army ROTC cadet. That's how I paid for college. So I owed four years to you, my fellow taxpayers. Did it down at Fort Carson. That's how I ended up in Colorado. Met Mari, and then uh, we loved the skiing and what God was doing here. So we stayed, uh, and three kids in a church later, here we are. Really grateful for that formative time in retrospect. But at the time, my army season was, uh, was really bleak. As I told you last week, I had just come from a time of rich, intense fellowship in my new Christianity with the the fellowship community of which I was a part. And if that was the best of times, this was the worst. It was the farthest thing from rich, affirming fellowship. I mean, nobody in my platoon was strumming an acoustic guitar and singing, Lord, I lift your name on high. There was no back rub circles among my soldiers. This was a depraved, dark environment. And I felt like sometimes we feel all melodramatic when the heavens are as brass. I would pray and nothing, or I'm dying on the vine. I prayed a variety of, of sort of Christian cliches that I had heard preached to me over the years. And, um, and I cried out to God, why is this 
happening? You've called me to full-time ministry, and I've said yes, and here I am. I'm supposed to be in the saving business, and I wake up, and I'm in the killing business instead. What am I supposed to do, God? And I tried to find ways out of my commitment. Maybe they would release us early. I looked around for what full-time ministry opportunities were available. Some of the brightest expressions of Christianity I saw were these young people associated with YWAM. I came from the Presbyterian Church. I didn't know YWAM was a thing. No one lifted their hands. No one was super excited about Jesus or really anything. Um, It it was sort of a stoic (laughs) culture. But but I was drawn to it. So, you know, the nice thing about living in Colorado Springs is there's one of every Christian thing there. There was like four YWAM bases. I literally went to one up on Star Ranch, and I knocked on the door of what was the dining hall. Uh, I was going to apply for a job, right? And I didn't know how it worked. Uh, and, and a 19-year-old kid in ratty flip-flops answers the door, and I was like, hi, I'm here to apply for a job. And he's like, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I wanted to come work at, see if it's possible, you know, to come work at YWAM. And he's like, dude, it doesn't work like that. I'm like, how does it work? And he said, and so little did I know, you come for six weeks, you stay for 60 years, you spend time in, in Hawaii, and you build the kingdom of God, and it's awesome. I didn't know how YWAM worked. I just knew I was supposed to be in full-time ministry, right? And that pursuit drove me almost for a season to miss the calling of God right under my nose in that season. Our title this morning is Full-Time Ministry. We're continuing in our series called Disruptors, looking at Paul's second missionary journey in the middle of the book of Acts, where Paul and this early adopter band of Jesus followers were recognized as turning the world upside down. They were the first disruptors. We're in Acts chapter 18 this morning. The Word of God teaches in verse 1, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They'd left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. And each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So, here in Corinth we see another variation on a familiar theme. Paul's doing that which has become his norm, going into an unchurched region, a city in what we call Europe, and going to the synagogue first, finding some Jews preaching that the gospel was the fulfillment of their faith, and then getting some opposition, spreading out to the Gentiles, and forming a ragtag band of diverse characters that were the first church in that city. Like what we saw in Thessalonica last week, so it happens in Corinth this week. But this passage gives us one additional detail. It's hardly more than a sentence, but it's fascinating and deeply unexpected. As part of his missionary calling, at least here in Corinth, it seems that Paul worked a day job. It says that he got linked up with Priscilla and Aquila because they had the same job. And like up until this point, we don't know anything about the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul other than that he persecuted the church, but it turns out he also made tents. Evidently, and this isn't tent maker in the euphemistic Christian community sense. He actually was the maker of tents. Now, what were tents used for in the first century AD? 
Essentially the same thing that they're used for now. People who want temporary shelter because they're going on a journey. Or maybe a few, you know, nomadic peoples. Um, but Paul made tents with his hands and, and sold them in a marketplace, right? And so, so did Priscilla and Aquila. So they went into business together. What's fascinating is just at the point where you expect Paul and his friends to be taking the plunge and going all in, right? If he had been working a job, by now he'd be thinking, hey God, this thing's working. The call of my life's happening. I need to go into full-time ministry. But instead, right in the thick of it, he gets a job and starts doing his trade. And he continues in his ministry trying to convince Jews and Greeks. Look at verse 7. He went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile now, who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. He reached out to the Jews. He reached out to the Gentiles. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul and became believers and were baptized. So he forms a church in somebody's home, maybe Priscilla and Aquila's, and does that thing he does. Verse 11, so Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. So he's doing his ministry, building the church, teaching the Word, and making and selling tents. And he stays there for a couple of years doing this. This wasn't like he went on a, a, little, uh, a little example tour to show him about how to, how to work. It seemed like this was just the normal Christian life for Paul as his ministry was continuing to thrive. So what were tents like at this time? Well, they didn't have Gore-Tex and things like that, so they were natural fibers. And the tent maker would take these, uh, chiefly goat hair in this region, historians have said, and they would weave the goat hair together into a watertight fabric and then stretch it, cut it, and uh, fashion it into a tent and then try to sell it, right? So I just, I don't know why, but I find it entertaining, amusing really to think of the Apostle Paul of, you know, like the Apostle Paul fame, like St. Paul's Cathedral is named for him, sitting on a stool, weaving goat hair, which is obviously not as funny to you as it is to me. <laughs> Imagine him doing that. It just is so unexpected, and then he was like sitting in a market going, hey, tents here, tents for sale. And he's trying to convince someone why his tents are better than their tents while building the New Testament church. It seems like Paul's just getting to high gear and then kind of tapping out or stepping back from his ministry. But what we see in this passage is of paramount importance to our understanding of what it means for us to be disruptors, to be the ones who turn Denver upside down. I would suggest the big idea is something like this. Good work done by God's people advances God's redemptive plan in the city. Good work done by God's people of all sorts advances God's redemptive plan for our city. Our work is, I would suggest, not a withdrawal, a hindrance or a distraction from our calling. Indeed, it is woven into our calling to turn the world upside down. 
Look at Jeremiah chapter 29. The people of Israel at their darkest time, they were defeated by the army of King Nebuchadnezzar and the remnant was taken to be slaves in Babylon. And at this low point, God sends the prophet Jeremiah with a message. He writes a letter and it was quite unexpected, I think, what he had to say. He wrote a letter, it says in verse 1, from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was the high-ranking, the religious elite, and the commoner and everyone in between. Verse 4, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives that he is exiled. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. In verse 7, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. I can imagine this couldn't have been more unexpected. This must be the opposite of what they would have thought God would want. Wait, this city that just defamed the name of God broke the back of his covenant community on earth? And you want me to work for their good. You want me to invest in their institutions, participate in the life flow of their city? Like, I think I would be expecting the letter to say, plan insurrection. Plot to depose Nebuchadnezzar. Shouldn't they be scheming for an overthrow or protesting the demise of Jewish civilization or at least planning their escape? But no, part of God's plan for Babylon was his people living there under the dominion of the enemy and doing good work and blessing and working for the prosperity of their city. How can this be? This seems so countercultural to what we many times hear to be the purposes of the kingdom of God. So I want to explore this this morning in three movements. We're going to start in Genesis at the very beginning. We're going to fast forward to Revelation and look at the very end. And then we'll land in mid-New Testament in Colossians and wrap it up there. And we're going to do that in 18 minutes or so. To make sense of this confusing, unexpected twist in the plot, I believe requires understanding God's original intent, his good design for our work. So movement one begins there, Genesis chapter one. The Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, describes that in detail, and then in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in this fourfold command, we have chiefly read, have a lot of babies. And I think that's part of being fruitful and multiplying. But being fruitful meant more than simply reproducing. Subduing the earth meant more than 
simply gaining dominion over the animals. I think we think maybe that means go to the tribe of savages and and teach them to, to read and write. But they were it. Adam and Eve were all there was to start with. The fruitfulness, the subduing, Bible scholars have concluded, has to do with a holistic mandate for humanity that draws from our God image. I believe what God was saying included this. Take the raw materials that I've given you and make something from them for the good of the world. You're made in the image of God. God put formless, void things and created from them beauty and purpose and fulfillment. You're made in His image. Go and do, go and do likewise. From the beginning... It's important for us to see that our work was intrinsically valuable to God. Our work, did you know it, is intrinsically valuable to God. Work preceded the fall. Sometimes we misunderstand the curse to mean that we had to work rather than sitting around lounging in a garden. The the toil, the sweat of the brow, the hardness of the work was perhaps the contribution of the fall of humanity. Work preceded the fall to tend the garden, to subdue and bring fruit from the earth. This is part of the glory of mankind. My good friend, Pastor Aaron, whom you've met, he pastors up in Fort Collins and comes here once in a while. We were skiing together this week, and he said, God gave trees, not tables. And I thought about that. The idea is God gave us the building blocks, the raw materials, but part of being made with creativity as a faculty, with drive and volition, being made in the image of God is the capacity and the mandate to take what he's given us and make something that adds value and creates worth and contributes to beauty. Last night I talked to Tom who is a second generation worker for Walker Mower, a Colorado company that literally takes materials mined out of the earth like ore and then skillfully fabricates them into large commercial mowers, lawn mowers, that then are sold to corporations and municipalities and things like that in order to maintain and beautify their property. And he said, I'm proud to work there. My dad spent his career there. That company is not only taking the raw materials, taking the wood and making tables, but employing people, creating prosperity, and contributing to the welfare and beauty of the creation that God entrusted to us. And that is intrinsically good. And that is unto itself valuable to God, as is the work you do. Deuteronomy chapter 2 finds the people of God in their formative state. Long before they were conquered by the Babylonians, they had been taken out of Egypt by God through Moses. They're wandering the desert before the promised land. And in this formative, unsettling time, the word of God records, God said through Moses to them, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. He knows you're not, in short, where you wish to be. You're not where he intends you to be. He hasn't forgotten the plans he has for you, but in the process, along the way, he has blessed 
the work of your hands. And this, more than occupying this particular real estate, this is what it means to be the covenant people of God. This means our work, friends, is not just a means to an end. It is an end unto itself. Challenges the notion that the ones who are, you know, really called, the ones who are gung-ho for Jesus, ought to quit their day job and go into full-time ministry. To follow Jesus is to be in full-time ministry. There is no other kind. God didn't commission His saints, the majority of whom should do part-time ministry and then squander away the rest of their time eking out a living, doing some frivolous job. It's all ministry when we are doing it for Jesus. The question this brings up, sometimes asked more often beneath the surface, is the thing about that, that might seem compelling. That might be true, except that everything I've heard about religion is that God's angry, barely containing his wrath. He's up there just like being restrained by angels before when he can't take it any longer, he destroys the earth in a big fireball. And so do I really want to invest my soul in work that's just going to go away? It's just going to get burned up. Revelation chapter 21 Movement two, we've got to address that question because it's deep in the consciousness of the Christian community and it's really woven into the fabric of our modern theology. So let's question it, shall we? Revelation 21, we looked at the beginning, now we're going to go movement two all the way to the end. The Apostle John, Jesus' friend, got a glimpse at the end of his life of how it was all going to go down and told us what he saw, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So where it says the former things have passed away, I think we have taken that to mean the earth as we know it, when what it's describing is the things of pain, suffering, crying, the ways of life on earth under the curse in the fallen humanity. But notice it doesn't say the dwelling place of man will be with God up in a castle on the clouds where we play harps and sing songs all day. It says God is coming down, a new heaven, to remake earth. And he says, I'm going to make all things new. So the end game isn't God destroying it all in a fireball. It's God purifying and restoring his good creation. I think we get taught to think lazily that God didn't like his creation very much. You know, it says he created on this day and called it good. And then he created on the next day and called it good and called it good and called it good and called it good. good. God so loved the 
world that he gave his one and only son. Now, the way we read that is God so loved the people, but God loved all of it, of which his creation had its pinnacle perhaps in humanity being made in his image. God loved the world, so he sent his son not to condemn it, but to save it. And so he is making all things new. The end game isn't destruction, it's restoration. Jesus isn't destroying the world, he's restoring it. And he's restoring it largely through the work of his people. N.T. Wright put it this way, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire or planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange as it may seem, Accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. The work we do is accomplishing something that transcends the fallen human era, that is a part of the foundation of God's new creation, his restoration work. Jesus said, hey, good news, everybody, when he sprung onto the scene, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. He didn't say that the good news is that one day, if you live a good life, you can depart, fly away, and go to the kingdom of heaven. He said the good news is the kingdom of heaven is coming to the earth, starting now, from the days of John the Baptist until now and on, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. This is the work of God, and this imbues our work with kingdom significance. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1. Paul wrote, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Three times in two verses, it says this, all things. There are not the godly things and then the rest. There are not the important things and then all of the periphery. All things were created by God. He's put all things under the redemptive authority of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for the restoration of all things, these human things first among them, that we as his body might fill all things everywhere with himself. And friends, where it says all things, I'm pretty sure what that means in the Greek is all things. There are not godly things and ungodly things. There are not spiritual things and human things. There are not sacred things and secular things. There are, as I have told you many times before, only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God waiting to happen. And the way that the kingdom of God comes in this world is through you. Filling all things everywhere with Jesus. Do you know he uses the church to inject himself into every sphere of influence, into every realm of human endeavor? Maybe the things that we do seem significant, like Dee and Krista doing work combating human trafficking. Maybe the things we do seem insignificant relative to the spiritual stuff, and we feel 
lament that we ought to go into full-time ministry. But you know what? Jesus cares about human trafficking and wants to fill that industry, largely secular, by the way, the, the combating of that blight. He wants to fill it with himself. Jesus also cares about glass, right? And he wants to fill that industry with himself through you. It's the way it works. And Jesus also cares about mowers and real estate and finance. Through your work, you're participating in God's grand design, His restoration work. What that means is that your vocation, your business is holy ground. There's no secular out there. There's no throwaway industry. God wants to fill commerce and construction, education and engineering, finance, medicine, and law. My friends, uh, Aaron and Megan Marsden, she's an entrepreneur. They're both entrepreneurs. She's a great businesswoman. And for the last five or six years, some of you know Aaron and Megan, she's been working on uh, and, and has succeeded in, in receiving a patent for new women's intimate wear technology that, better, that provides better uh, performance for um, modern uh, women in their uses. This is a realm of which I admittedly know little and speak about um, with, with a certain amount of hesitation. However, this is important, and Jesus wants to fill uh, the women's wear industry with himself. And as, as we've been praying for Megan and Aaron, as she's been going to New York and pitching this to major sportswear companies like Reebok, we've been building her up in God's truth that that industry, as she's told us, doesn't have a lot of Jesus in it. How is that industry going to get filled with Jesus? Through Megan Marsden. How is the industry in which you work going to get filled with Jesus? Through you. So there is no secular realm. So the response in our internal narrative might go like this. Well, that's great for Megan because she's doing what she's passionate about. She's pursuing her dream. She's living her true purpose. And our generation and culture have done a disservice to us by suggesting that the work that is valuable is just the work about which we feel extra passionate. Like, you know, Kristen may be passionate about real estate, certainly works well with her gifts and her mind. Clayton may or may not be passionate about glass. He's shaking his head no. But you know, <laughs> But you know what? The making the work as valuable as our hearts feel fulfilled, it settles for less than what God has for us, right? I think there's something in our internal narrative that tells us if, if we're not doing um, our dream entrepreneurial endeavor, we're doing glass, um, that says, uh, I, I'm, I'm casting my pearls before swine. I am being pigeonholed in a realm that is not my own. I certainly felt that way and lamented the death of my calling while I was blowing things up with tanks 
and teaching soldiers to kill more efficiently. Movement three, Colossians, and we'll land here. Three verse 17 says, whatever you do, 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 do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because doing what you do in Jesus' name and doing it well gives Jesus a good name. Our good work substantiates our good news. Because did you know good news with bad work is actually bad news? Like, good witness plus bad job performance equals bad witness. We've probably all had more than our fill of the worker with the fish on the van showing up late doing a shoddy job and then dickering over nickels and dimes. I'd rather you take the fish off the van and do a really good job. Our good work substantiates our good news. You doing your job with all your heart makes Jesus compelling. Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they will see what? Your good work and give glory to your Father in heaven. The world out there watching for hope, waiting for the daughters and sons of God to be revealed. They may or may not take notice of your good religion, but your good work, that speaks their language. And so Christ plays in every place where you go to work tomorrow morning. Good business deals, good bus sales, good glass installations, all of this represents Jesus. And I was thinking about Adam in the first service. You know, he, he works in sales and he does a great job in a very short window of time presenting an important product to a busy buyer and, uh, you know, gives the highlights of his product, distinguishes it from the others and says, I'd really like to earn your business. Oh, and by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross to save you from your sins. Not likely to happen. And so we get intimidated by religion that says the, the, the real redemptive value of your work is to set you up to be an evangelist. So you should do your work in such a way that when you're selling landscaping, like Drew did for a lot of years to somebody, you should also slip in a gospel presentation, you know, like pitch them the four spiritual laws. That's probably not going to go that well. And so what hope is there? Colossians 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it heartily. Do it with all your heart. As though you were doing it for Jesus and not for other people. Work at it with all your heart and demonstrate Jesus. Last night, one of our brothers told me I work for a, 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 a big company and I work on a, a tiny microscopic bit of a small cog in a huge machine. And I go to work early, 6 a.m., and I do the same stuff for 23 years. I've worked on the same databases. And I realize that what I do is important to the product, but at times it feels mundane and lifeless or like um, it has no relevance for the, the real work of the kingdom. And he said, last week I went for my second cup of coffee about 6.30 in the morning, and a couple of my coworkers were there, and they said to me, he told me, you know what? You're always cheerful. 
every single morning, you say, good morning with a smile. And they're like, we love working with you. And he said, I realized when you said this, that this was me in spite of myself. They're seeing Jesus. That may be the most gospel message that those coworkers heard all year. That may be the most Bible they're going to read for quite some time. And as our good works demonstrate and glorify our Father in heaven, we are advancing his kingdom. We are doing his work. Your work matters. And listen, it matters even if you hate it or you feel unfulfilled by it, or you know it's not what you were made for. Your work matters. Your work matters because God wants to redeem it. There is no realm of men, there is no enterprise on the face of the earth that Jesus did not die to redeem. He is restoring all things. And you're like, oh yeah, what about like the pornography industry? Well, anything that is intrinsically evil is a perversion by the enemy of something God created for good. God created entertainment and the enemy distorted it. And so what do we do? We do entertainment better and take it back. Right? Your work matters because God wants to re- redeem home construction. Jose, when you go into someone's home and you're retiling their bathroom, you're injecting Jesus into a realm where he doesn't currently play. And that's important. And your work matters for the influence it gives you. Yes, influence if you climb the corporate ladder. A few of us have the opportunity and the talent to be in the C-suite, and that influence matters in a particular way. And We often hear that talk, but your work also matters for the influence it gives us in our rank-and-file daily enterprise. The influence like Jim talking to his coworkers at 6.20 in the morning, and they're seeing Jesus in him and receiving a glimpse of the hope that he is coming to inject the world with, to restore to all of creation. And so let's be done with the distortion and the lie that our work is just a means to an end. That it's sure valuable if you can harness it, bait and switch them and share the four spiritual laws. But otherwise, if you really cared, you'd go into full-time ministry. Listen, you're in full-time ministry, whether you like it or not. It's what it means to follow Jesus. And you're doing a great job with it. And you're showing Denver Jesus. And I have the easy job. So many of you over the last two services have had said thank you for that good word. Listen, I got the easy part talking about it. You're the ones that have to go do it. I work with Christians. Like a well-trained chimpanzee could love Jesus when you get to work around Daniel and George and Mari. These are wonderful people. You're going into the battle. You're facing the fray and injecting darkness with light. You're the glorious ones in whom is all our Father's delight. That's what the Word of God says. And so, as you do this, know you do it with the blessing of heaven. What you do is sacred stuff. Whether you're preparing people's taxes or preparing their burgers, whether you're managing their finances or cleaning their toilets, whatever you do, Jesus is doing it through you and restoring this city to himself. And that's part of what it means to turn the world upside down here in Denver. Amen? Would you stand with me? It's time for us to go. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the truth and hope that are in your word. Thank you for your good plans to restore all things to yourself. And thanks for entrusting us with that work. 
Friends, as we go, we're going to close in worship. And I'd like to invite you to come in and let us pray for you. We'd love to pray for your work. Maybe you're looking for a new job. Maybe you're about to graduate and applying and not sure how God's going to open the door for you. Or maybe you're feeling frustrated or hindered or just discouraged in your work. We'd love to pray with you. May we never gather, talk about the things of God, and leave unchanged. We are the body of Christ. All around you are the hands of Jesus outstretched to share his hope and love. Not going to do anything magical. We're just going to agree with you for God's work and join our faith to yours. And if you're new to following Jesus or it's been a long time since you've made that commitment, if you hear us talking about this stuff and you're like, I don't think I'm on the same page as you guys. I kind of feel like I'm on the outside looking in. We'd like to invite you to come home. Jesus died so that you could live. We'd love to pray with you about that or anything at all going on in your life. So as our leaders make their way up to the front, you can come to this side too, guys. And let's go over to the corners more so the sound is a little quieter uh, and it's a little bit private. And then as we respond in worship, let's come and and let us pray for you and let's respond together uh, to the good work God's doing in our hearts. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 